Welcome to Forbes Podcasts. Hi, this is Denise Ristari, and welcome to Mentoring Moments, where women you may never meet will become your mentors. Mentoring Moments is part of the Forbes Podcast Network, produced by Fractal Recording. Kat Cole has the ultimate self-made woman story. She grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, with her two sisters, a single mom, and $10 a week for groceries for the entire family. In high school, she took a part-time job as a Hooters waitress, serving beers and wings. And when she was 19, in college, studying to become an engineer, Kat got that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to help Hooters expand internationally. So she dropped out of college and headed off to Australia to open Hooters there. And what happened next is what makes for a great headline, something that goes like this. How Cat Cole went from Hooters girl to running a billion-dollar brand. Though the story behind that headline is, when Cat was only 32 years old, she became president of Cinnabon. And last year, -year 36-year-old Cat was promoted to group president of Cinnabon's parent company, Focus Brands. She's now responsible for five brands in addition to Cinnabon, including Auntie Anne and Carvel's. And along the way, she did get her MBA. Kat has many mentoring moments in her life, and we're going to talk about them today. And she credits her single mom for many of her life lessons. And this is one of my favorites. Every birthday, Kat's mom sends her a card that says... Don't forget where you came from, but don't you dare let it define you. Hey, Kat. I'm so, so excited to be back together with you. I think it's been like a year since we last saw each other. Absolutely. So this is exciting, and I want to, I'm going to dive right in, but before I do, I want to remind our listeners of something that happens on Mentoring Moments. I don't have a clue what you're going to say. Nothing is pre-planned. You don't know what I'm going to say because I don't know what you're going to say. And what I say follows what you say. (laughs) So so we are going, we're inviting people into our conversation, literally. We're just going to keep it going. And we're going to kick it off, though, with you telling all of us your mentoring moment, that story, something that happened to you in your life, something you saw, a person that really changed the way you think or do things. It's all yours. Uh, I would say there have been so many mentoring moments, these small opportunities where someone shares a story or perspective that becomes incredibly helpful to me. Uh, but there was a time when I was about, oh, 18 years old and working in Hooters restaurants as a, a Hooters girl, and I was still in high school. And my general manager at the time, my boss, Bonnie, she pulled me aside and I was working multiple jobs. I had started working when I was 15 and uh, the restaurant job was a second job. And eventually I ended up with a third job. And so occasionally I would come in late to work or would have to leave a little early for my other jobs. And I remember she pulled me in the office one day and she said, you know, I, I think you are fantastic with your peers 
and you're so good with your customers and there's a lot of opportunities to open new restaurants and do other things with this company, but I have to know that I can rely on you and I need to know that if I need you to come in a little early or if I, if I plan on having you help or train someone that ultimately you can be relied on. And she was the first person to really hold me accountable as an adult at work, but to do it in a way that gave me the perspective that there were people and processes that depended on me. And that's why I needed to be more committed to this job. And she ended up telling me a few stories about times where she had missed opportunities because she didn't demonstrate that she was fully committed and she didn't have her priorities in order. And I was so young and it was just probably her way of managing because she saw potential in me. But not only did that allow me the opportunity to feel valued, but it gave me a leadership example of what it feels like and looks like to help someone see that they're capable of more than they know and they matter more than they know to the business. And so I ended up stepping up and of course, having a, a long career, eventually opening up restaurants and franchises with that company all around the world. But more importantly, it shaped the way I believe people should be talked to, coached, directed, and uh, how people should be made to feel that they can and should step up to a leader's expectations. And how does that play out for you now in your leadership role? Uh, the way it plays out is I demonstrate that behavior very consistently when someone uh, has the potential to do something, but maybe they're, they're not um, stepping into that full potential. I give them that perspective just as she did with me instead of saying, hey, you, you need to be on time or, or hey, you're, you're not doing your job in the way that you should. I describe what I see in them, what I believe in them and what I believe they need to do and give them the why uh, behind what the business needs. And it's incredibly effective. That's really great advice. I, my daughter is in the restaurant business. She is a hostess at a restaurant in Pittsburgh. And I was talking to someone the other day about what a great learning and what a great learning experience it is for her because the restaurant business, as you know, is tough. It's really tough. You've got to show up. People are depending on you. And one of the things that she loves about it is that immediate feedback. You know exactly when you're doing good and when you need to fix something. And she's all about wanting to do the best she can be, the best she can do and be the best she can be. And I, I, I look at it and think the restaurant business is so hard. And I think there are a lot of people in that business as well as other businesses that aren't as nice as your boss was in telling you how to do it right. That's right. That is very much about do this, do that. You didn't do this right. And I even look back at myself when I was managing and it's taking that deep breath or even being a parent. It's really taking that deep breath and not saying, do this better, or starting things off with, instead of saying, don't lose the money in your pocket, being on the positive of, so when that, that money in your pocket, what are you going to do with it? Versus being the, don't lose the money in your pocket. Now, if my daughter's listening to this, she'll be telling you that I haven't perfected that yet. <laughs> that I'm still like, and don't lose the $20 I gave you. <laughs> but I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So looking at, I was thinking earlier today too, and I've done this with Jane Warwin, but something happened today that I was thinking about this. The things that we're done with in our lives that, and I think this is interesting because you're in, you're still in your thirties, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm in my sixties 
And I think a lot of times we think that the things we're done with happen to us as we get older. So that, you know, it's not like when you're in your 30s. But I think in your 30s, when you look back, what are some of the things that you're done with that you did in your 20s or even in your earlier 30s? Uh, you know, the usual stuff. I don't think I'm different than any person who goes through stages of their life. So in my early 20s, I probably spent a lot more time drinking and partying, you know, than I do now. Not that I don't love having a great time when I go to special places with special people, but your your entire social circle changes and your priorities change. And certainly what you have to lose changes over time as you grow in either responsibility or visibility. Um, so the, you know, the basic things, I, I don't think I'm, I'm still just as adventurous as I ever was. I still love to, to take risks risks and travel and um, do crazy things outdoors. And I still hold all of that very young spirited sort of risk inclination. But I think the, you know, the way I define social interactions and what's, what's meaningful socially has certainly evolved from my 20s to my 30s. What about the boy department? Um, well, I'm insanely happily engaged to the love of my life. So you know, life changes. And so when I was in my 20s, I had amazing, you know, relationships and dated around. And then I got into a long-term relationship when I was very early uh, in my in early to mid-20s and was in a long-term relationship after that and then left that. And now I'm in this just amazing relationship with the most wonderful man in the world. So I had a good old time when I was in my, <laughs> when I was in my early 20s. Did you have dysfunctional relationships? I was just talking with someone last week about she's in her 40s and she's in a very dysfunctional relationship. And being in my 60s, I thought, and I'm happily married and I've been married for 11 years now. So it's hard sometimes to think back, but I know I did these stupid things as well, but it was really hard not to say, don't do these stupid things. I would ask questions instead and say, so what's really troubling you that you're talking about this or something bothering you and trying to bring it out? But really there was a part of me that was like, stop doing this shit. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I would say, I don't know that I would call them dysfunctional, really. They were just fun relationships of a young 20-year-old that ran their course and were right at the time. And so they were good for right now, but obviously not the right thing over time. And just your typical meet someone you like, have a good time, have some shared interest, and then realize you are not a good match or you grow apart. Or, and I'm such an evolver and a discoverer. I'm a a different person every year because of what I learn and the communities I become a part of and absorb and connect to. And so I have sort of evolved and grown out of things very quickly over time. And certainly when I was younger. And I'm going to ask you a question that I'm going to tell you a story. So the question makes sense, but the question is, do you live in the present? And I was in Jackson hole last week with my girlfriends and I went there saying purposefully, I am going to go there and live in the present. I'm, I'm very good, which is not a good word. I do this a lot. I, I'm somewhere and I'm always thinking of the future or what else I have to do tomorrow. Or I'll be on a trip thinking about what I'm going to plan for my next trip, what I'm going to wear. And not because I'm not enjoying it, but I'm really not fully present. So when I went to Jackson Hole, I was like, I'm going and I'm going to be fully present. I'm not going to wear the badge of honor of I'm on vacation, but I can still handle XYZ workload stuff while I'm gone. I really tapped out of that. I think I really was on the computer for work about an hour out of five days. 
And it felt really great being in the present, just living it in the moment and taking it in for what it was worth in that moment. Do you live in the present? Yeah, I'm very much in the present. Um, always have been. It's even though I can multitask with the best of them when I'm with the people that matter the most in my life, my love, my family, my team, um, Sometimes I'm a multitasker like everyone, but generally speaking, I am very good at being present with people. And then I'm also very good at being present in places when I'm alone so I can fully benefit from whatever the, that moment provides or the universe is offering or the experience provides to be open to connecting with people or learning or thinking about something in a moment. And I don't know why I've, I've uh, really never had a a problem with that. When I was younger, I definitely was your typical um, workaholic, but the way that showed up was I would be incredibly present with whoever I was with, which probably meant I was late for whoever I was supposed to be with next, but then I'd be incredibly present for, with them. And so that would sort of trickle down. But I've, I've always been able to sort of shed whatever is in the back of my mind generally and be incredibly present. Well, you have a lot of responsibilities with your job. So how do you do that? How do you, how, how do you block it out so you can be present? I want the tips. I want to know. Yeah. Uh, well, part of it is, if, as it relates to the work side, is having a great team. It's a lot easier to not have to worry about what's going on back at the office or to fully unplug if you're on vacation if you have a great team. And and truly, I work with really hard workers and amazing team members and people that I know will figure it out and make it happen. And um, certainly, we're aligned in our culture and our values. So even if something big does happen. Um, I feel that we have a pretty aligned strategic intent. So a big part of being able to unplug and be present outside of work is having a great team and good things going on at work. Um, that's one. The other is that I realize if I keep subtracting from my relationships by not being present, ultimately I'm no good for anyone. So I keep that in perspective. If I'm not able to be fully present at home, then I won't have a great home experience and that will eventually bleed over to not being able to be fully present at work. And that is a downward spiral. So keeping that all in perspective is is important. And, and I think the few times most listeners can relate to when you do unplug and you are fully present and you decide to take that day off of work to do something special for your loved ones, or you decide to spend that extra day at the office to really commit and you trade off time with family, when you do those things, you realize the world doesn't fall apart when you're gone from the other. And the trick is just learning to keep that all in, in relative harmony. What are the things that you do for fun? Oh, uh, gosh, uh, spend time with the love of my life is the most fun. Um, walking, running, yoga, time with friends, doing humanitarian work around the world with the United Nations Global Entrepreneurship Council. There's a lot of things I do that sound like normal people's fun, you know, spending time with loved ones. What's more amazing than that? Traveling. But then there are things that other people might think sound like work, like spending time in third world countries and refugee camps. But um, that's incredibly invigorating to me and feeds my soul. So tell me, what have you been doing lately with the UN? Uh, so I'm a part of the United Nations Global Entrepreneurship Council, and our work is to bring entrepreneurial thinking and entrepreneurship to some of the most underserved populations in the world and to find a way to help countries around the world achieve the uh, sustainable global development goals 
through entrepreneurship. So some of the goals are things such as um, gender equality or uh, clean and accessible food, clean and accessible water. So how do you use an entrepreneurial filter? And so we're a collection of business people and entrepreneurs, and we bring thinking processes, connections, fundraising to startups, to governments. Uh, I leave in a couple days to go visit refugee camps um, to focus on how to bring entrepreneurial thinking to help refugees elevate themselves within the camps and also to help governments adopt more entrepreneurial thinking, sharing with them how we address business challenges to help them address both the challenges and the opportunities that come with a large influx of refugee populations. So that's what we're working on right now. And when you meet with the young girls, whenever I meet with these young girls that are from the developing world, I'm always not just inspired, but I find that there are mentoring moments in there that I always learn something from them. Are there any stories that you have from being with the girls that is a, that are mentoring moments? Sure. Um, I'm, and I'm just to clarify, I'm typically with all walks. So older men, women, parents, but half, 50% of refugee populations in camps are typically children, not specifically girls. But I have done work with some groups that are more women focused. So when I'm with youth or with young girls, it's to your point, it's incredibly inspiring. Their perspective, the ability they have to learn very quickly, the mentoring moment that I can remember from working with uh, youth and young people in developing countries was in Ethiopia in coffee fields. And I met this young girl named Biftu and we don't speak the same language. They speak a very old dialect that has to be translated into multiple languages to even get it to the point where it can be translated to English. Yet we had this amazing connection from just laughter and the, the mentoring moment from that was a reminder that you don't have to speak the exact same language. You don't have to come from the same place or even relate in any other way. If you have a common openness, there's a way to build human connection upon which many other things can eventually be built. And it made me think about the times where I hear executives say, well, they just don't understand me, or I had a really hard time getting through, or I can't believe um, that they're not buying into this. And it, it always reminds me of that moment I had with Beef 2 where there was such a great connection with so little context or history. And it reminds me to help inspire people or share different ways to connect with humans, especially when I'm doing business and or whether it's humanitarian work or for-profit business in many cultures around the world with multicultural teams. Uh, it's incredibly helpful to draw on that memory, which in and of itself was a mentoring moment that a deeper connection is always possible in a simpler way than most people think. You know, it's interesting, Kat, because when we started, you were talking about how your boss communicated to you when you were at Hooters. And that communication and how she communicated was really important. And now we're talking about communicating with our eyes and our smiles and how important being able to read and understand people is. You're a great communicator. So if you're telling, you're, you're a great mentor also, and I know you mentor a lot of young women. So if I were 20-something and I'm sitting across from you, what would you tell me about communication? What are some great things I can do to move my career forward? I would, I would say, and I often do say, that there are two rules in communication and one is know thyself and the other is know thy audience. And that's 90% of being an effective communicator. And so it really would, what I would say would depend on 
how well I believed you have come to know yourself and understand how you're perceived, um, as well as what are the skills that you have or the, the muscle that you've built to quickly assess and understand and empathize with your audience, whether it's an audience that's reading, it's a one-on-one audience, or maybe a, a group that you're speaking to. And those are the two buckets. Those are the two biggest muscles. They're like the right hand and the left hand um, of being an effective communicator. And if someone wants to optimize their chances of being effective in life broadly, and then more specifically optimize their opportunities in business, then certainly getting good at knowing how you're perceived, which means having ways to get feedback, being honest about that, being very literal about feedback, meaning videoing yourself, recording yourself, um, getting feedback from those that you believe have your best interest at heart, but who will be honest. Uh, that, that piece of the pie, understanding yourself, know thyself and how you come across and then realizing if the way you're coming across is, uh, is what you want. And if, if there's a gap between how people perceive you and how you want to be perceived, that then there's a body of work to be pursued. Uh, and then the other piece is, knowing your audience, or at least doing your best to quickly assess and understand and empathize with your audience. And that comes from being humble because you believe it's about them and not you. It comes from being able to observe body language or uh, read signs or being a very good listener. And those are skills that I might suggest if they're not well-developed might be an area of focus. And when you put those two things together, a highly developed sense of uh, and accurate sense of self and an incredible ability to quickly connect uh, with a group or to understand what their needs or their values or their desires or their problems are, you put those two things together, you can end up without a lot of magic. You can end up with, um, with a, a pretty sophisticated set of communication skills. And are there things that when a young person or really any person of any age comes into your office and says something that you sit there and think, no, 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 that is not the way to do this. Are there any stories that come to mind of somebody who's doing something that you're thinking, no, stop now? I mean, it depends on the scenario. You know, I, I always assume positive intent. So uh, I understand that people come across the way they do for a reason. So there might be times where someone is jumping to a conclusion or making an assumption and I'll, I'll chime in and say, hey, let's pause for a second and let's just look at it a different way. Let's assume positive intent. Even if what's going on here is exactly as you believe, let's for a second assume that the other person has a very good reason for whatever it is that they said. Or let's assume that the the business had all the right processes in place and something else broke down. So I typically, the coaching that I find myself giving is around frame of mind uh, before someone communicates. And that will typically help them be on a more centered path, something that's a little more objective, that might not be as polarizing uh, or divisive. And so there are so many stories where people have come in and said, I believe this, or I want this, or this didn't happen, or I think this. And I'll often pause and say, uh, okay, that's, that's interesting. Let's pause for a second and reframe it and just make some different assumptions so that we're actually narrowing down what the root of your feelings, emotions, perspective really is. 
That's great. When this is kind of a sideways story to that, but it just came to my mind. So when I was said I was just in Jackson Hole with my girlfriends, and we went kayaking, and there were five of us, and so we have the kayaks on the trailer, and we've kayaked, and now we're, we've loaded the trailers, we've loaded the kayaks back on the trailer, and we're headed back to deliver the kayaks, and we get there, and there. Are, telling us that we need to back the kayaks on this trailer down a driveway, back it down. And we really are looking at them like, what are you smoking? That that isn't happening. We don't have a clue how to back this trailer down. So one of the women I'm with says to the young man who is with the kayak company says, oh, but you'll back the kayaks down, right? And he's like, no, we don't back the kayaks down. And she's like, oh, but my friend said you do. He's like, no, we don't back the kayaks down. And he's like, hey, Joe, do we back the kayaks down? And Joe's like, I don't think so. And somebody else, and nobody is really in power or control in this group of guys who are deciding whether they're going to help us back the kayaks down. And she looks at him, and she can see this look of determination on her face. And she puts her hand on his arm, and she says, he says, no, we don't back them down. And she says, oh, but you do. And he looked there and he was like, I guess we do. And he went and backed the kayaks down. And I thought, I'm a fairly, I don't want to, a forceful, when I need to get something done, I just don't give up. But I learned something that day, it was a real mentoring moment for me, of just sometimes keeping after what you're going for and reframing it. Instead of asking him the question, she was like, oh, but you do back the kayaks down. And he was like, well, I guess we will back your kayak down for you. It was a great mentoring moment. And speaking of mentoring moments, I didn't realize this, but you've been using the term mentoring moments for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, when I was young, moving up at Hooters, I had a lot of people asking about uh, mentoring and if I would mentor and if I had mentors. And uh, and it was probably a it was it, it's some article in one of the major business magazines about four years ago, four or five years ago, um, and they started asking me about mentoring. And my immediate response, you know, do I believe in it? How important is it? What's my advice? And I said, you know, maybe because I'm both younger and still in a position to have many mentors over my life, and I am uh yet in a position of executive leadership. So I'm sought out as a mentor often. I have a different view. And I started using this term mentoring moments. And I wrote blog posts on it and started doing interviews and really getting a a little bit of a passion around reframing people's views of mentoring instead of finding a mentor or being a mentor because it felt so daunting and like this big commitment. And I heard people talking about getting mentor training and it felt so huge and heavy and therefore not accessible. And so when people asked, do you have mentors? And I thought, well, not in the formal sense, no one that would tell you they are my mentor, but man, have I had so many people that have provided mentoring moments. And it just, you know, the the alliteration is really nice and and it just stuck. And so I started talking about mentoring moments. And every time someone would interview me and ask about mentoring, being a mentor or, or being a mentee, I would say I believe much more in both giving and seeking mentoring moments. And I've got a simple formula for how you find it and a simple formula for how you give it. And it is simply asking someone who you believe has experience, going to them and saying, I'm dealing with this situation, X, Y, Z. I heard you have dealt with it. Can you tell me about it? That's it. 
And because mentoring is so different from coaching, mentoring is about perspective. Mentoring is someone else telling you their story and you take the lessons out of it. Coaching is someone telling you what to do based on the current situation and what their experience is. But mentoring has a very different tone. It's about perspective and context and color to your thinking and you take out of it what you will. And when you narrow this mentoring relationship down to mentoring moments, you've just democratized access. You can get it from anywhere and you can give it to anyone who needs it in such a simple way. I'm going to thank you for just saying what you said and defining the difference between mentoring and coaching. Because I was saying to someone a few weeks ago, a guy said to me, talking about his daughter, what advice will you give her if you're her mentor? And I said, you know, I don't think I'm going to give her advice. My mentoring comes from sharing stories. It's really about my experiences. And your daughter can decide whether she wants to take them or leave them or how they may apply to her. But when I think about it, when I mentor someone, I don't really say, go do this or go do that, unless they're doing, going to do something dangerous or stupid. Then I will say, don't do that. But short of that, it's the, this is the story. And you can use it as you wish. I never thought about the difference between coaching and mentoring. So that's a great point. Do you have another mentoring moment that you want to share? Anything else that from, from you, another mentoring moment? Sure. When I was in my uh, late 20s, early 30s, uh, I had been an executive for Hooters for six years since I was 26 years old. And uh, I was starting to get offers to go work in other companies. And I had turned them down for years because no other company uh, really had been as exciting or interesting or had as much growth in other countries. And, and I had learned to really appreciate that with, with Hooters. But there were a few that became really interesting, especially at a time where I was going back to get my MBA uh, and on nights and weekends, and we were in the middle of, of selling Hooters uh, into private equity. And, and I still was just so committed to the company and, and one of these amazing humans, this woman who has given me so many mentoring moments that I would officially call her a mentor. And she, I got on the phone with her just a few minutes and said, you know, I'm considering these offers. There are these opportunities to change industry sectors. And, but I, I'm just feeling this sense of obligation that, you know, the company Hooters has given me so many opportunities over 15 years starting to be an executive at such a young age and um, they've invested in me and, and I'm struggling with taking the next step for a, a job in another company. And she said, you're right. You're, you are right to be so grateful about what you have both accomplished and received from the opportunities that company has afforded you, but make no mistake about it, they have benefited from you. And she listed a few ways that she believed they had benefited from me, my leadership, being an ambassador for the company, uh, et cetera. And so one, just her sharing that gave me a little extra confidence. And, and then she said something so simple and so profound. And she said, you know, you have these great offers. Eventually you will make a transition. And so she said, I want you to remember that this is not the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life, nor is it the last of the big decisions you will make. And when you're a young person making life-altering decisions, it feels very heavy. So you stress about it more. You, th you think about it more and thinking about it is good to a point. And just her sharing that perspective gave me an inner calm and a sense of peace and therefore a confidence in my decisions that led to me eventually being very comfortable making my next move to leave the company. But it was her perspective that sort of talked me off the proverbial ledge that I see many young people uh, 
really dealing with where they're thinking, oh my gosh, and they him and haw and go back and forth and could eventually him and haw themselves out of the opportunity and just talking to her and having her say, this isn't the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life. And it's not the last of the big decisions that you will make just gave me great perspective and more confidence to think through it thoughtfully, focus on the objective pros and cons, and then eventually made the decision to leave. When I was younger, my uncle used to always say to me when I was in my 20s and deciding if I lived in D.C. and deciding if I should move to Atlanta, and he would always say to me, what's the worst that could happen if you move to Atlanta? They're still going to allow you back in D.C. if you decide you want to come back. Right. So he would always say, you know, when you make a decision, make it based on as long as you don't kill someone, kill yourself, hurt someone, change someone's life in a bad way forever, just go do it. You can always reverse it. But are, are you a believer in people should look for a job while they currently have a job? I think it is totally not that simple. It is about where you are in your stage in life. I mean, who are any of us to suggest what others should do regarding their work. It's There's so many variables in a work decision. One is what are the needs and responsibilities you have? It's really easy to talk about leading your passions and doing all these things. If you've got four kids at home and you're a single mom, there's some pretty basic things you need to make sure happen. And that might make you have to consider alternatives to what you would consider being, I don't know, a, an artist. And it would take you years to build up to that. So there's a practicality to what you need in your life situation. And you have to consider your life's needs and those that depend on you really meaningfully in those decisions. The other is I tell people, and I think about it for myself, be practical about opportunities and reality. You have to, you have to balance. I just heard an amazing woman talk about balancing aspiration with reality. And there is a, a, a situation I see some people get in where they're constantly looking for the grass being greener. And there's a, there's a difference in constantly being desiring better and more and being completely delusional about what you could get elsewhere. And I remember, you know, when I was talking to the leadership team, when I first became the president of Cinnabon, and they said, you know, you'll probably be here two years, two or three years, and then you'll be on to something bigger and better. And what's interesting is that after two or three years as president of Cinnabon, I was onto something bigger and better. But in fact, the bigger and better thing I was onto was the version of Cinnabon that we had built. And so I didn't feel the need to go look for another job that was bigger and better. I felt the responsibility to create bigger and better in the company that I had because it had all these other pieces that were so important, great culture, great people, great values, great franchisees. I wasn't so delusional as to think, well, I've, I've done this. I've checked the box. Now let me go find a bigger company somewhere else and start over. The opportunity for better was right in front of me. Sometimes that is the case for people as it was for me at that time. Sometimes it's not. So I don't think it's as simple as look for another job while you have it. I think it's be really aligned with what's important to you and constantly reconcile objectively and practically uh, balancing reality and aspiration if your current life situation, the whole puzzle personal, professional, what you do outside of, of work, if all of those things are optimally delivering on your values or have the potential to. And if they not, you should be, if they don't and they're not, you should be making adjustments in your personal and professional life to move them in a direction where they are, your situation is more likely to deliver on the things that are most important to you. 
That's priceless advice because I think so often young women, young people are just told in general, just go do it. You're young. Just go do it. But a lot of times even young people have responsibilities that they just can't go do it. And they, and they have to figure out how do they create their dream with what they can do. And I think we forget about that point a lot of there is the reality that goes with the dream. Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? You know, I think you hit on the, you know, the importance of a few critical things to me, the importance of communication, um, the importance of kind of keeping your whole life in perspective. And um, I find that I think as we get older, the mentoring moments we tend to start having and giving tend to be more about the personal side of life. And people will ask about balance a lot, you know, balancing your life and balancing your time. And, um, it is interesting when important things happen in your life, whether it's like me finding the love of your life or a momentous occasion having children or something happening in your family. It tends to be the most powerful of all mentoring moments because it helps you put your life in perspective and you reground yourself in your values and your priorities become very clear. And the advice I often find myself giving and needing to remind myself of is every so often, every month or every quarter, to sit back and think about what is important to me broadly in life? And am I on a path that is most likely to deliver on the things that are most important to me? And that doesn't mean I have to have everything right now. But am I in a personal situation? Am I in a professional situation? Am I spending my time with my family or the community or whatever it is that is moving in the direction to continue to deliver on the things that are most important to me. And if it's not, I'm not going to get any closer to that until I make a change. And so that process of whatever you want to call it, reflection, reconciliation, those tend to be some of my biggest self-mentoring moments. Mentoring moments don't always have to come from other people. They can come from having the discipline to reflect and be honest about what is most important to you and why. And then asking yourself for the things I'm doing more or less likely to deliver on those values or those things that are important? And am I courageous enough to make changes short and long-term that deliver on the things that are most important to me? So I'd, I'd say a mentoring moment I would give to listeners and one that I try to give to myself is give yourself the gift of reconciling the things that you say are important to you, how you want to be perceived, the impact you want to make, uh, how you connect with those you love, and then ask yourself, does the way that you spend your time uh, – reflect those values. And if not, you should seek to bring those things closer together. And do you have advice for when you fail? How do you pick yourself up and move forward? I think it all depends on how people define failure. Um, fail, the, my favorite way to look at failure is the acronym first attempt in learning. So I don't That's great. feel that I need to pick myself up after a failure because it's simply an attempt in learning. So I make a mistake I realize it, I acknowledge it, I make amends for it, and I make sure that it colors my thinking for the next time so I'm better and move on, get over it. Pretty simple. And so I don't, I think when you view failure that way as as simply a, a step in learning, I'm kind of practicing at life all the time, then, then that helps to frame it in a way where it doesn't feel like this huge fall and then there has to be this massive recovery. You know, it's all just a part of a very long timeline of many, many, many learnings. And as long as you do actually learn from them, then it doesn't become some 
big, horrible, life-altering thing. Now, of course, there are moments in life that can be big and horrible and life-altering, but I find what most people view as failures and they get caught up and they worry about how they're perceived. I don't get as caught up in those things and recommend that others don't either. You acknowledge a mistake or a learning. You make sure you take into consideration anyone that it's affected and make amends for that to the greatest degree possible. Demonstrate your learning and allow it to improve the way you show up and live life going forward. But how do you just let go? I think that's a great skill to have. So I want to be able to help our listeners. If you have any tricks or tips on how do you let go? I think the way I let go is by keeping everything in perspective. I spend time in some of the poorest areas of the world. I I spend time with the love of my life, who is the most important thing. I keep the things that are the most important, not just in the back of my mind, in the front of my mind. And so when little things happen that might be distracting where others have struggled to let go, the technique I use is to ask myself in the scheme of things, how important is this really? And if I allow it to take over my emotions, I'm going to be less effective for my fiance or I'll be less effective at work. And it's just going to continue to drain me instead of serve me as the learning it should be. And so when you keep things in perspective, when you're thinking, you know, is it really that big of a deal? Rarely is it, then it's pretty easy to let it go. It doesn't serve me. It doesn't serve anyone else to allow it to sit and fester or become a thing. And so when you keep things in perspective, when the greater goal is to be as effective of a human as possible, to be as great of a partner in life as possible. When you keep that in context, the bigger picture actually says the way to serve those people is not to wallow in a mistake or allow something to burden you, but rather to simply let it go. And then it becomes really easy. And a question for, since you are a millennial, you're on the, I guess you're on the <laughs> cusp of a millennial. Yep. I'm the youngest and, of the millennials. And that you're engaged and you sound just so happy about being engaged. So I feel so happy for you because I know you. that feeling of when you find that person in your life, that is my husband in my life. And it's just life, life becomes great. And not that you're not happy with yourself because yeah. you are, but then when you have that other person that really taps into you and you tap into them, it doesn't get much better than that. Okay. Do you get the question about having children? I'm asking for our listeners, our young listeners who are faced with this question a lot, if there's any advice, any thoughts you have. You know, I think it's just such a personal decision. And um, when people ask my advice, they ask about trading it off. There is, of course, a lot that's that's possible. And you just have to know what matters to you. If you believe you, in order to have children, you need to be able to spend time at home and get yourself in a situation where you can do that, then do that for you. If you grew up like me with a mom that raised three kids on her own and believe that kind of anything is possible, that's my belief system. And so I I think it is, it, women need to, it goes back to what I suggested earlier, that process of reconciliation. What's important to you? And make the decisions for you that are grounded in and what you believe is right for you. I don't use anyone else's definition of family or anyone else's definition of timelines. I use my own. And I know the things that make me happy. I love children. I love the concept of family. We could end up having our own children. We could end up adopting or we could end up having none. Who knows how it will evolve. But my definition of family is not built on how other people or society define family. It's going to be whatever 
Daly and I decide to create on the timeline that we decide. And I will root all of those decisions in what feels right to us at any given time. And of course, work and things like that will factor into it. But ultimately, family, however we define it, uh, living our best life is what's most important to us and everything else is secondary. I'm at a stage in my life where I can say that confidently. But when I was 24, I probably would have said the opposite. The most important thing to me is learning and growing and pursuing my life's passions. And then eventually I will create some type of a family, whatever that means. And so just be rooted in what's important to you and don't allow that to be defined by anyone else. That's my advice. And that's wonderful advice for all things in life, whether it's having children, getting married, not getting married, not having children, whatever it is. It's just really understanding what's important to you. That's hard. But once you get to that point, it's just life becomes great. The hardest part of this podcast, which I knew would be when we entered it, is saying that we have to go for now for now, because I could just talk to you, as you know, forever and ever. I'm just always so impressed by what you do, how you do it, your sensibilities, everything about you, and especially at a young, at a younger age. It's, um, it's just always, I walk away after we have a conversation, just feeling so inspired. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I'm going to blow you a kiss. A mentoring moment I keep hearing from all of our fabulous mentors who have joined me on the podcast is to ask for what you want. So my ask for today is I'm asking you to subscribe to this podcast. That way it will be delivered to you the moment it's released, which is every other Tuesday. And check out Mentoring Moments on Forbes.com for stories you can read and share. You just enjoyed a Forbes podcast. To learn more about our other shows, visit Forbes.com slash podcasts. Thank you.